Hey everyone, Saul Marquez here. Have you launched your podcast already and discovered what a pain it could be to keep up with editing, production, show notes, transcripts, and operations? What if you could turn over the keys to your podcast busy work while you do the fun stuff like expanding your network and taking the industry stage? Let us edit your first episode for free so you can experience the freedom. Visit smoothpodcasting.com to learn more. That's smoothpodcasting.com to learn more. Welcome back to the Outcomes Rocket. Saul Marquez here, and today I have the privilege of hosting Richard Hanbury. He is the founder of Sana Health, a neuromodulation platform for pain relief and deep relaxation. Richard developed the technology behind Sana to eradicate his own life-threatening pain problem following a spinal cord injury from a Jeep crash near Sana in Yemen in 1992. Richard has an MBA from the Wharton School in healthcare and also a law degree from the College of Law in London. The original benchtop device removed all his nerve damage pain in three months, saving his life. He has spent 25 years developing the SANA technology from the original benchtop device to the current device undergoing clinical trials. SANA uses pulsed light and sound and a heart rate variability feedback loop to guide the user into a deep state of relaxation. Clinical trials have just been completed in opioid use disordered and fibromyalgia, and SANA is launching in fibromyalgia in 2021. However, it is available today, and Richard is going to tell us more about it, and I'm just really excited to have the opportunity to interview Richard and, and have him bring forth this technology to, to the the world. And so Richard, such a pleasure to have you here today. Pleasure to be here, Saul. Thank you. Yeah. And so before we dive into Sana, and it's Sana.io, folks, if you're curious, tell us a little bit about you and what got you into healthcare. Thank you. Yes. As a 19-year-old kid, I was traveling in in the Yemen and I was given a choice of a head-on collision in my Jeep next to a petrol truck or to go off a bridge. And I chose to go off a bridge because I figured uh, we were dead either way and there would be some remains to find if I went off the bridge. So down into a dry riverbed, wow. um, 60 foot down and Jeep crumpled up like a Coke can. Uh, and that resulted in spinal cord injuries from T8 to T10, which is belly button level, plus a traumatic brain injury and an aortic tear. So all of that was why I then had to be medevaced back to the UK. I was clinically dead for eight minutes back from that into a coma. And then all of that resulted in a nerve damage pain problem that was so severe, I was given a five-year life expectancy. So really, it was a question of, you know, figure something out for myself or uh, or die. So that was the mother of all inventions, necessity. That's unbelievable. I mean, that is crazy. So you're driving a Jeep and there's this truck just heading straight at you and you're like explosive death or fall off this bridge and you just made the choice. I mean, like when that happened, Richard, to when you actually remember, like what point did you actually start remembering what happened and gain consciousness? And how did they find you? So well, so my, my passenger was uh, broke a lot more bones than me, but was in good enough shape to, first of all, shout in Arabic to the people watching the road to danger petrol cigarettes because they were running towards to help us with lit cigarettes. And oh my our, our, our car was, you know, everything was soaked in the gasoline from our own tank. Um, but, uh, yeah, then, then he, he managed to get them to throw away the cigarettes, pull us out and transported us to, uh, what they very loosely called the hospital. And then from there, my, my friend got the, 
insurance company to send the medevac plane to come and pick me up. Unbelievable. I mean, I mean, that is just unbelievable. Uh, you're a miracle to be here still. And I'm sure that the road to recovery was not easy for you. And, you know, lots of pain. You said, I got to do something about this. And that was the beginning of sauna. And so you've made leaps and bounds since the beginning. You're recovered. Very happy for you, Richard. And uh, as I'm sure your family is too. So now you have this device and this company. Why don't you tell us a little bit more about what it is, how it works, and that way the listeners could get educated on it, including myself. Certainly. So basically, all pain is some combination of central mediation, which is how the brain processes pain, and peripheral pain, which is the signal coming into the brain. Now, with my kind of pain, I had spinal cord injury and TBI. And I was on the very extreme end of the spectrum where it was all about how the brain was processing a pain signal, but it wasn't really actually a pain signal coming up from my spine. It was essentially a corrupted data stream. It's mm. very similar to what you get with phantom limb. You're not, your oh, brain's yeah. not actually being told you're in pain. It's being told you're, there's this weird signal that doesn't quite make sense. So mm. with me, I was really, really lucky. The, the original device was able to wipe out all of my nerve damage pain. The other end of the spectrum were people like, uh, people who have things like chronic regional pain syndrome, uh, where anecdotally we seem to be helping 10 to 20 to sometimes 30% to reduce pain. But if they stop using a device, the pain comes back. And yeah, those are the two extremes and, 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 and fibromyalgia, which is currently our focus is, is right in the middle of those two. So you have the brain amplifying pain and you have an actual pain signal coming up from, from the body. So, yeah, we, we play all in the central mediation, how to help your brain basically not amplify the, the, the pain that is coming in from the body, if that makes sense. Yeah, it does. It does. Um, wow, that's fascinating. Uh, you know, pain is a very, very complex thing. And there's there's a lot of different ways to tackle it in the in the in the pre-COVID stage. You know, there it was a big focus. And I think it's still important for us to, to realize that even with COVID, the problem of the opioid epidemic is still lingering, in fact, probably getting worse. The importance of, of technologies like this for, for pain management, are they're, they're just front and center. And so as we, as we think through how this thing provides relief, tell us a little bit more about maybe some, some ways that it does it differently than other devices out there and what specifically you would call the, the differentiator for this. Certainly, what, to your earlier, earlier point about COVID, when COVID hit, we were already in clinical trials for neuropathic pain with Mount Sinai, uh, and we were planning the larger clinical study at uh, Duke on fibromyalgia. But we thought, okay, well, everyone in the era of COVID is suffering from um, sleep issues, stress issues. And so we, we did a very, very shortened timetable to launch as a wellness device under a 513G approval from the FDA. Uh, so we are on market for that. So we have to be really careful about explaining to people that you know we are on label for wellness and, and improving sleep and and helping people with, with mental clarity. And in the meantime, also going through clinical studies to then end up with the FDA indications for for the other pain areas. And really, sort of to your, to your question around what makes us different, what I discovered when I was in hospital was I went through the standard of care. Basically, that standard of care hasn't really changed in 28 years. There have been some technological improvements, 
on the uh, implantable stimulators, but all the implantable stimulators are dealing with peripheral pain. They're not dealing with how your brain processes pain. That's a that's a tool that's missing in the toolkit if you have extreme peripheral pain. And what I realized was that meditation and learning to meditate when you're already in a lot of pain is not a particularly easy thing to do. And when you do become more present moment aware, if you're actually already in a lot more in, in a lot of pain, you just become more aware of how much pain you're in, which is what happened to me. So I then watched a movie and a movie um, which I watched while I was in hospital, put me in and out of what we would now call a flow state. Mm-hmm. And at the end of the movie, I thought, holy crap, that changed my pain levels more than morphine. Mm. And and then I thought, okay, well, the bits of the film that made me feel less pain made me feel like I used to when I was skiing. Because, uh, you know, everyone has experiences of flow state in their normal life. Like if it's, you know, if you have a favorite, favorite football team or, or other sports team that you're watching, uh, and you get into, you know, what we now colloquially call a flow state. Mm-hmm. Or if, you know, you're spending time with your kids, anything that, that stops your brain thinking about analyzing the situation around you and just enjoying the present moment, that's, that's what a flow state is. So I thought, okay, well, I like I flow need states. to find a way. Yeah, that everyone does. I mean, you know, they, <laughs> they are the most addictive things. This, this, is, this is why people like watching sport. Yeah. Uh, this is why like people like watching good movies. If, if only we could always, or all movies were equally generating flow states for everyone. Um, you know, everyone has their own favorite movies. Um, family time, you know, time with, time with friends where you're really enjoying yourself. Those are all flow states. And meditation is, is, is a flow state too. And so I thought, okay, I need to be able to generate this at will, uh, whenever I want to. So then my thinking was, okay, well, if I've meditated all my life, then I could do that at will. So what's different about a long-term meditator's brain? And luckily, I was able to stand on the shoulders of some brilliant neuroscientists in the 70s and 80s who uh, did a whole bunch of work, and specifically Maxwell Cade, uh, who did work showing the differences between the brains of people who didn't meditate and those who meditated a bit and the long-term serious meditators. And by looking at his research and then looking at my brain in comparison, that gave me the roadmap. Huh. And, and one of the key things that's different is that they have a balance of activity in their brain between the left and right side of their brain. Um, they have what's, what's, what's termed hemispheric balance. Uh, and that's because it costs an average of all the normal different cognitive functions you do, like thinking, memorizing, reading, paying attention, listening to someone, talking. So, yes, yeah, so, so this hemispheric balance isn't there typically in people with long term pain or long term anxiety or even in the short term. So yeah. that gave me my roadmap of I need to fix where my brain is, which is very heavily skewed to one side to what the long term meditators brains look like. And you can't do that with any other modality than audiovisual stimulation. So that's where I ended up. Um, wow. And once I had that problem being solved, it wiped out all of my nerve damage pain over a three-month period and never came back. So I, I am a very extreme example, and we have to be careful because you know a lot of people hear my story and they're expecting the same results. We ha- we've rarely, very rarely have people we can't help at all. And the question is, you know, to the degree to which pain, your pain is made worse by stress, that's usually the degree to which we can help. So, yeah, we, in, in a lot of cases, we're a tool in the toolkit. And just in rare cases like mine, um, and hopefully we'll find more uh, that we can be, be a fix. Man, that is interesting. Thank you for sharing that. And folks, if you go to sauna.io, it is a pair of, um, it's a headset. And it comes with with headphones. And those headphones are 
not headphones. They're um, uh, what do you call these? Yeah, it's a goggle-like device which delivers the, the light stimulation, mm-hmm. and then headphones which deliver the sound. And basically, we supply headphones in case people haven't got their own that they really like. Mm-hmm. So some people have Bluetooth headphones. Some people just have headphones that are really not good enough. So most people end up plugging in their own headphones, sticking it on. And the experience is basically you sit in a reclined position or lying down. You put on your headphones and the, and the device itself. You press play and through closed eyes, you're seeing a gentle pulse of light and hearing a gentle pulse of tone of sound. Mm-hmm. And if you think of your eyes as four, eyes as two inputs and your ears as two inputs, we're cycling between those with different algorithmic patterns, then gets the brain into a very deep relaxation, relaxed state. Mm-hmm. And that relaxed state is what accelerates neuroplasticity. Wow. And you guys recommend doing this once a once a day for 16 minutes? Typically, yeah. So so when we when we started our fibromyalgia study, we told people to to use it twice a day, and then whenever they whenever any of their symptoms were too much for them to enjoy what they were doing, um, we had people using up to five times a day at the start, and then when they were out of their acute phase and they were in in a sort of stable new point, once a day was looks like it's enough to keep someone in that managed pain state. Interesting. Thank you for that, Richard. So I'm I'm curious about how it's improving outcomes. Like, uh, do you have any stories around, I know it's wellness stage right now, um, and you've shared your story, but do you have anything else you want to share there around outcomes improvement or wellness, the wellness portion of it? Yeah, certainly. So, I mean, on, on the wellness side, almost everybody gets a relaxation effect, improvements in sleep and, and general well-being. And that hopefully will always be the case. On the clinical side, early clinical pilot results for fibromyalgia, which is now the subject of the larger study, and we're hoping to submit to the FDA for approval in in February next year. But the early results so far have shown that we are approximately five times better than Lyrica, which is the best-selling drug for fibromyalgia. And we're, we're five times better at improving overall quality of life. And obviously, we don't we don't have any side effects, any negative side effects at all. We have a whole bunch of positive side effects, but nothing negative at all, which stands us in very high contrast to all of the drugs. So your average fibromyalgia patient is typically taking a cocktail of five to eight drugs because the neuropsychiatric pharma approach is take a drug for each individual compounding comorbidity. Mm-hmm. So, for example, Xanax for anxiety. Uh, Symbolta for depression, Lyrica for the nerve pain, Tramadol, Ambien. These are just some of the typical drugs that are taken. And it's worth noting that none of those drugs have ever been tested for safety or efficacy when in combination with any of the others, let alone the sort of typical cocktails that people take. And they're not really solving a problem. Almost everyone, it's reducing symptoms. And that is kind of the state of play within fibromyalgia. So you're, the average person who has fibromyalgia, 85% women, 15% men, the average person goes through five different physicians before they get a diagnosis. And typically, that's a process of about five years on average. So really hard to diagnose, really hard to get taken seriously, really hard to figure out what it is. And then when you do, not great solutions, hopefully, uh, until us. And with a bit of luck, we will have those trial results in, in, in January next year. Well, that's amazing. Thank you for sharing that. And, you know, you think about the, the downstream impacts and improvements of obviously upfront, front and center uh, relief for the individual taking it, uh, using it, 
And then, you know, the downstream impact of all the money you could save from your personal pocketbook, but also as an employer or an insurer, right? You're, you're going to be saving sure. tons of money if you have the opportunity to use something like this when it becomes available later next year or whenever it gets approved. Uh, just fascinating. Certainly something to consider in the wellness state to start exploring and seeing where where it goes from here, whether it be for your personal use or or the application for a population you're in charge of. Certainly something to to think about. Richard, you're uh, obviously a, you know, you, you walk the walk, you talk the talk, you use this because you need it. You know, developing a device is not easy. Talk to us about, you know, one of the biggest setbacks you've experienced and a key learning that, that's come out of that. Um, I would definitely say that the most important lesson I learned was uh, a concept that um, I, I try and explain by calling it minimum viable data. Mm -hmm. um, coming as I did from the non-academic side, I had this belief that data is and, and credibility is a bar that you have to get over. And therefore, I spent a lot of time and effort trying to raise money to do the larger clinical studies um, when I didn't have the enough early data to get the right people interested and to get the right VCs to give me the money to do it. And what I learned was it's absolutely not true that credibility is a bar. Credibility is a ladder. And the smaller, simpler steps that you that, that you try and take, the faster that you can take them uh, and the, the quicker you can gain support around you. Because the question you really need to ask is, what's the cheapest, simplest, quickest bit of data that just gives me that little bit extra uh, proof that I'm on the right track? Because then you start getting help from from everyone. The universe starts to support you. So that was really the, that was definitely the biggest learning overall. Yeah, that's interesting. And, you know, rather than say, all right, there's this big thing I got to do. You're looking at it as a ladder now and yeah. taking it one step at a time. That's right. That's right. If someone had told me that um, as a medical device entrepreneur uh, in my early years, it would have saved me probably four years of time, three years of time, yeah. really, at least. So if you are developing a medical device, you should hit rewind. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. I mean, so, so typically you've got two different sources. So there are lots of there are lots of things that come out of academia. And there you have people who can stay in their day jobs spend lots of time applying for grants and not care that those grants take them a long time to get and a long time to process because they have day jobs. And, and, and that's a, that's a good source of funding and they can get data before you have to go and get money from VCs. If you are coming from the patient side, like I did, you have to go get data that will persuade investors to give you money because you don't have time to apply for grants. Um, and grants take too long if you're, if you're on a burn rate of your own salary. Yep. So it's, it's really a question of, you know, don't try and shoot for the moon. Uh, aim for the moon as the as the end point of where you stick your ladder, but look for what's the quickest, shortest first rung of that ladder to go up, and then totally. the next one, and then the next one. Yeah, love it. Yeah, great distinction, great distinction for sure. And so, love that you guys have made the progress that you have, and uh, you're going to submit for FDA approval. Sounds like early next year. What are you most excited about today, Richard? I'm really excited about. A thousand person, uh, one arm study that we are going to, um, start early next year before we get FDA approval. It's in parallel with the Duke study on fibromyalgia. It will be a 1000 person study that will go out in concert with the mighty. The mighty.com is a patient, uh, advocacy, self help support group 
which I think now is in excess of 3 million people who've signed up for various disease groups to get more information and help each other out of, of ways to improve it. And they happen to have a 289,000 person strong fibromyalgia following. So they're helping us launch this first thousand person test. The purpose of that is to back up the data from, from the Duke study, help us do more to segment and where in fibromyalgia we're having the biggest impact and who we can help quickest. And really, that's what I'm really excited about because it was Thanksgiving last year. So this lady rang me up at 8 a.m. in the morning and said, I had to ring you because it was Thanksgiving because you saved my life. And I was feeling pretty sorry uh -huh. for myself before she said that. And I was like, oh, okay, uh, who are you and what happened? And she had headache pain from a traumatic brain injury. And she happened to use the device because a, a friend lent it to her. And it stopped her pain, which was making her feel suicidal. And, wow. and, and in future, TBI will be one of the things that we do a study on. We've got a grant application at the moment. So we're not on label for it yet, but we're going down that road. But what it really showed me was if we once we've got a thousand devices out in the real world helping people, it's only then a matter of time before we get up to the millions of devices helping millions of people. And 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 really, you know, I've had 28 years of, of doing this now and I had, you know, six years of proving out in anecdotal small tests that it works in all these different areas, but it didn't have the technology. The technology just wasn't there to build the standalone device that we now have. And really, I had to wait until the wearable technology caught up with where I wanted it to be to then relaunch the company, build the awesome team I have around me now um, to get this out to market. You know, now we're going through the steps necessary with the FDA to, to prove we've already proven to, to their satisfaction around safety. And then the next hurdle is you know proving them around efficacy. So really, after a 28-year journey, we're right on the cusp of being able to help all the people that it irritated the hell out of me. Um, over the 28 years previously <laughs> to not be able to help them because I couldn't figure out how to, how to make a device that anybody could use without me being there. So it's the next stage in a, in a very long journey. And it's really exciting to now be just at that point where, you know, we're, we're just at the point of being able to help people out in the real world. That's exciting, Richard, for sure. And big kudos to you. And, you know, we do get a good amount of uh, VCs listening in checking out what's out there, what's new, what's interesting. So if you're listening to this interview, certainly one to consider Richard and his company, sana.io. In the show notes, you go to outcomesrocket.health, type in sana, S-A-N-A, or go to sana.io. You'll find more info on Richard. And if you're on the patient front or just wanting to help somebody, uh, certainly a promising technology here to, to help with chronic pain. Richard, can't thank you enough for spending time with us. Uh, I'd love if you could just leave us with a closing thought and the best place where the listeners could reach out to you if they're interested in uh, collaborating. Certainly. Uh, my email is richard at sana.io. That's S-A-N-A dot I-O. Um, yes, and in addition to the to VCs and, and um, uh, family offices, uh, we would very much like to hear from any other payers and providers, we're building up physician networks with pain clinics. So anybody on the payer side that wants to reduce their costs and the employer side as well, uh, through to physicians who want to help build up a network, please do feel free to get in touch with me. And I guess my parting thought is COVID is teaching us all that there's a lot greater possibilities with digital health and telemedicine and doing things at a different distance. And those, that awareness that we can, we can do things not necessarily with drugs, but with devices as well at a distance 
that's coming at a time when it's needed more than ever. And it's very exciting for the whole digital health space because it essentially opens up access to pain and mental health help for people who it just would have been too expensive for before. So I, I, you know, COVID has obviously done a lot of damage to a lot of people. And at the same time, it has opened up opportunities, which hopefully in the long run will overall dramatically reduce the amount of pain and suffering that people have to go through. And we're excited to be a part of it. Anybody who would like to join us in our journey uh, or who think we might be able to help them in theirs, please do get in touch. Thank you very much. Awesome, Richard. Hey, really appreciate it. And uh, definitely a true pleasure to have you on. Well, I appreciate it too. Thank you very much indeed. Hey, Outcomes Rocket listeners, Saul Marquez here. I get what a phenomenal asset a podcast could be for your business and also how frustrating it is to navigate editing and production, monetization, and achieving the ROI you're looking for. Technical busy work shouldn't stop you from getting your genius into the world though. You should be able to build your brand easily with a professional podcast that gets attention. A patched up podcast could ruin your business. Let us do the technical busy work behind the scenes while you share your genius on the mic and take the industry stage. Visit smoothpodcasting.com to learn more. That's smoothpodcasting.com to learn more.